The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, but almost no jokes. You won't like it. Monday, the 8th of June, 2020. In this episode, we hear the death rattle of an empire in decline. We hear some examples of 21st century information warfare. K-pop fans take over the White Lives Matter hashtag online. And we hear just how important the US protesters are to the people. This means a lot to me. I'm not even mad though. This is the 9pm information warfare in a dying empire. And it's not going to be a very happy episode. In the last few weeks, I've been watching some BBC documentaries by Rich Hall, and I'm becoming even more of a fan of his work than I was before. Now, Rich Hall, he's an American comedian, writer and musician, uh, but for the last 20 years or so, he's been working mostly in the UK. He spends part of his time writing plays in the United States. He's got a small ranch just outside Livingston in Montana, but the rest of the time uh, he's in London. He's got a, a flat there. Now, Rich Hall has done a ton of stuff for the BBC. I mean, all those panel shows, of course, but also a bunch of 90-minute documentaries all about American film genres, culture and history. They're really worth checking out. You can find most of them, or at least shitty uploads of most of them, on The Tunnel of Sheep. Now, one of them is titled Rich Hall's Continental Drifters, and It's about that most American of genres, the road movie. Modern road films, that is, films about restlessness, began to gestate in the 50s. Poets like Allen Ginsberg and Lawrence Ferlinghetti turned drift and disaffection into a literary movement. They were the beaten down generation, or beats as they were called. Maybe it was a lot of self-indulgent tripe, who knows? But even rich white kids need some kind of an outlet. As you can imagine, uh, Hall had quite a bit to say about Jack Kerouac, or should I say Jean-Louis Lebris de Kerouac, uh, and his novel On the Road, which was written in 1947 or 48, but it wasn't published until 1957, mostly because all of the drug use. On the Road is a story about two young men, Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty who travel frantically back and forth across America seeking vicarious thrills. The novel is actually a thinly veiled account of Kerouac's own life in the late 1940s, a breathless, almost celestial celebration of the bohemian lifestyle. There's still some echoes of that lifestyle, and real distant historical echoes of that lifestyle in San Francisco today. Up in North Beach, there's... The saloon, as they call them there, called Vesuvio, which is where Kerouac and others used to drink and do other things. It's still there. It trades a bit off that reputation, but it is a really nice small bar and they make a really good Bloody Mary, let me let me tell you. And it's right next to uh, City Lights Bookstore where all of the kind of beat 
poet's stuff was published and later uh, a whole lot of, uh, well, uh, gay rights stuff uh, and so on through the 1960s uh, and 1970s. Anyway, all that I wanted to, to, to mention because that's background to what, for me, was one of the key bits of this segment about the Beats in Rich Hall's documentary. Kerouac's writing fostered a raft of legends. Kerouac doesn't slow down for punctuation. Kerouac can write a novel in a week, cranked up on Benzedrine, cigarettes, and gin. A single draft is all Kerouac ever needs. His spontaneous Hepcat-style inspired literature and the filmmaking of French New Wave directors like Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut. And its overriding ideal was this. The first thought is the most important thought. Rewriting kills instinctual purity. The manuscript for On the Road was written on a single 200-yard teletype roll to save Kerouac the effort of changing typing paper. Its existence acquired mythical proportions like a Dead Sea Scroll. But it was all a bit pre-calculated. Jack Kerouac did not write On the Road in six days or two weeks. It took him ten years. Scores of drafts of the book have been uncovered. One of them is in French. The beat writers wanted people to believe that they were artistically exalted, spontaneous, off-the-cuff, non-revisionist, what Allen Ginsberg described as angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection. They were high. They just wanted to kick the ladder out from underneath them. Kerouac never made much money off of his books, which preserved his literary status. He also drank himself to death. That's good for pickling your reputation. The purported Holy Scroll for On the Road was eventually purchased at auction by the owner of the Indianapolis Colts pro football team for $2.2 million. That's about 500 times more than he was ever paid in advance royalties. Incidentally, the scroll is perfectly punctuated. Now, this isn't a podcast about punctuation or Jack Kerouac. What I'm getting at here is that mythology is created. Kerouac created the mythology of writing everything in a single draft while speeding off his dial simply wasn't true. This week, or kind of last week by the time you're listening to this, Donald Trump, President of the United States apparently, started to create more of his own mythology. It's the lead up to an election, of course, in only a few months. But you've seen the video. I know you've seen the photographs. He strode with his his posse, his all-white posse, his all-white middle-aged to old men posse, out of the White House, across Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., to stand in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, Episcopal Church, to hold up a Bible, which he seemed to struggle to work out which way up it should go. Uh, and when asked, is that his Bible? He said, it's a Bible. And that's true. Uh, back in 2016, we saw actually his Bible. It's a little bit rough at the edges, but it does have Donald Trump embossed in gold on the front, and this Bible didn't. I don't think that's terribly important, whether it was his Bible or not. What is important is that he strode out to create this image 
and a campaign video showing him as the strong, determined, stern leader. But this is, in fact, what happened just beforehand to make that possible. I mean, you've seen the imagery of this, I know. Peaceful protesters were cleared out of Lafayette Park with chemical weapons, and now the White House argues about whether that was technically tear gas or not. They bashed the protesters, they bashed the media, so that the big, strong, orange man could stride across the park. I've kind of been poking at making this podcast for, well, a week now. Uh, and it's been hard for me to kind of focus on what my key message was going to be. I'm still struggling, but I think my message is about the mythology of the United States of America, all men are created equal and all of that stuff, when, you know, <laughs> fucking of course not. So I decided, like now, after quoting a bit of Rich Hall, and do go back and watch those documentaries, the one on the creation of the image of the Indian is, is amazing, uh, as is the one on um, the Cold War, duck and cover, folks. But for the next few minutes, uh, I'm just going to mention some of the random bits and pieces from the kaleidoscope of cuntfulness that, that is the United States uh, in the last couple of weeks. For example, uh, and, and I'll link to all this stuff, of course, as I usually do, the police department in Albuquerque uh, had to kind of reprimand some of its officers because those officers had met with a group of white supremacists to give them a heads up about what was going to be happening in, in Monday's process, uh, protests rather. Uh, Albuquerque Police Department says they're investigating uh, the incident, but yeah, there are people within US police forces who just want to coordinate what they're doing with the white, white supremacists. You know, the guys, the guys in the Hawaiian T-shirts. Uh, according to a report uh, by Al Jazeera Plus, which is the kind of youth targeted part of Al Jazeera's news network, there was a truck driver who drove his truck into protesters in Minneapolis uh, but he's been released from jail without any criminal charges. The governor, the state governor, said that the driver was frustrated when he drove onto the highway just before it was closed to traffic. So he got caught in traffic. He got frustrated and ran into protesters. Now, fortunately, none were injured. Frustrated. Uh, in Los Angeles, we heard this chant, which I think is quite clever. Why are you in riot gear? You're expecting a riot. You're triggering a riot. You are ready to bash. It puts the police into a certain mindset. And 
it creates a mindset like this. Ajit Singh, who uh, does journalism of some sort in an American city somewhere, I don't know where does it even matter anymore, it's across the nation. Simple question about the curfew, and this was the answer. Can I ask you what's going to happen at 8? Yeah, the police are just going to start beating the fuck out of you. As you may remember, this latest round of riots in the US was triggered by the death of a man called George Floyd, who uh, had a cop kneel on his neck until he was not quite dead. He died in hospital. El Hardy, uh, an Australian journalist, I think, who spends most of her time in the United States. And this is another uh, point about creating the mythology. Three years ago, she tweeted, uh, and links, of course, on the podcast website to all of this stuff. There's quite a few links this time. Uh, she was investigating what she called the small but growing industry of insurance and reputation management for individual police officers. Now, she never got the story together because she couldn't get enough people to speak on record. But what she said that, okay, police in many a major, uh, in many major American cities hire uh, private PR management firms. Now, there's nothing new about that. You you always want to you know manage your message. Uh, in the media these days, didn't used to be the case. There was a time when I was a radio producer decades ago. Yeah, you you just phone the boss of a company and generally you'd say I'm from the ABC and you would get through. Now, oh oh no no no, everything has to be cleared by a lawyer and a crisis PR person and. And uh, then you get a kind of written statement, which, of course, is fantastic on the radio, but you can probably call that person and then have them read badly the written statement. What El Hardy found, though, was that some of these insurers were offering PR insurance policies for police in the event that they shoot a civilian. Just as an aside, police are civilians too. They're not the military. They, they don't have powers to just kill people uh, in, in the aim of national uh, aims and goals. Anyway, after uh, the Ferguson shootings, we all know about that one, uh, apparently business is booming. Um, El Hardy spoke to a Los Angeles uh, police beat reporter or someone who used to do that. And what these, um, these companies do is something called preemptive image control so that they've got something ready in case the cop kills someone they've already got a photograph of that white cop kneeling down with a black kid at a christmas parade uh, and he's you know letting the kid share his his police hat and it's all very jolly and then well, that's perfect, right? Because if ever anyone ever says that cops killed a black person or a brown person, then no, 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 they're, they're not racist. Look at this guy. He was nice to a black kitty at Christmas. I mean, can't, 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 yeah, all of that. 
Uh, incidentally, there's I've linked to another article by El Hardy. Um, I won't talk about it much now, but it's called The Modern Apostles Who Want to Reshape America Ahead of the End Times. Uh-huh. And it's about something called the Seven Mountain Mandate, which is a manifesto for all of the evangelical, um, Pentecostal in particular, Christians conquering all aspects of American life. There is an organised takeover in uh, in progress. I'd like to uh, congratulate the wonderful people at Teen Vogue again. <laughs> Teen Vogue is part of the revolution and fashionably dressed. Uh, they published the other day how to safely and ethically film police misconduct with a guide from the human rights organisation Witness. It's actually really good advice. Go and look at that. I'm blown away. Speaking of information warfare, which all this kind of is, uh, K-pop versus the racists. K-pop fans take over the White Lives Matter hashtag online. At some point in the wee hours or late last night, K-pop fans felt motivated to take over the White Lives Matter hashtag the Blue Lives Matter hashtag, and the MAGA hashtags, on Twitter anyway. They were emboldened, perhaps, uh, because over the weekend, they took over um, a hashtag that the Dallas Police Department had, uh, had used looking for video footage of protesters. And the K-pop fans took that over, and not long after, they went global. So that report is from Variety. The thing about what happened in Dallas, though, it wasn't just that the Twitter hashtag uh, was was flooded. Dallas police have an, an app called I Watch Dallas, which is meant to allow citizens to report crime, right? You report crime, you can upload a photo or video or whatever. But fans of BTS, the biggest K-pop group and biggest band in the world, really, about, really at the moment, and Taman, uh, they just started submitting... Uh, K-pop videos to the iWatch Dallas app blew it away. And and indeed, while they were downloading the app uh, on the App Store, suddenly there were 4,000 ratings for the app uh, and reviews, most of which uh, were negative. The thing about the, the K-pop flood, though, is not all of it is genuine. Malware Tech Blog, who's a guy called, uh, that's his Twitter handle, he's a guy called Marcus Hutchins, um, he noted that there was one of these accounts had 120,000 followers because it started as a fake K-pop giveaway account, so therefore it is run by somebody, do we say criminals, do we say nation state actors, I mean, who knows, but if you pretend to be giving away K-pop stuff and build 120,000 followers, you're there for a purpose. That's what it was until three days ago. Well, at the time he wrote this, a few days ago. Suddenly it switched to saying it was an account for Anonymous, the the so-called hacker collective. Um, and then it started tweeting about Black Lives Matter. Now, this is a common thing in information warfare uh, by the, the social media disinformation campaigns. They begin as one thing to build up an audience, and then they flip to being something totally different so that their messages can go into a certain 
target audience. You know, they, they might pretend to be, I don't know, soccer moms in the US and it's about all of that and all they do is retweet other people's stuff on that sort of topic. But then suddenly they become, I don't know, a MAGA group or, uh, I mean, name your political cause, right? But they exist within that community. So that account was one. Uh, interestingly, uh, Marcus Hitchens, uh, as I said, Malware Tech blog or Malware Tech uh, more generally, he's a British security researcher. He was the guy who figured out how to stop the WannaCry ransomware attack uh, because it had a self, not really a self-destruct mechanism in it, but kind of. And the reason Australia never really got hit with that ransomware attack is that because by the time the sun had come around and Australians were waking up, he had already defused it. He did make the point, therefore, that whenever you see something that claims to be from anonymous, well, that could be anyone. Uh, I mean, and I said, yeah, look, sourcing something to anonymous, you might as well say you were told this by invisible space leprechauns or, or something. Uh, I have actually had someone uh, who used to work at one of the spook agencies, let me say, who said the, the fact that just anyone could be anonymous and they, you just sort of have, you know, the V for Vendetta mask and all of these things. Just saying you're anonymous is, uh, as this spook said, very handy. Of course, uh, while race riots are going on, um, uh, corporate uh, PR people are trying to cash in on this by by showing uh, how how supportive they are. Um, I'll read this one. This is from Adobe, the software you know graphics and image processing and all of that that company. They said, and I quote, and I haven't linked to this because fuck them. Adobe joins those speaking out against social injustice and intolerance. We will continue to support, elevate, and amplify diverse voices through our community of employees, creatives, customers, and partners. Racism, inequality, and hate are against everything we stand for. Today and every day, we stand together with the black community. And it's like got a black background and the Adobe logo. But what the fuck is, what does that even mean in a practical sense? What did Adobe actually do? I mean, this self-congratulatory bullshit changes precisely nothing. The fact that Adobe has perhaps black employees or black customers, I mean, that's not something to boast about, right? I mean, that's just what should be normal. But I thought this was satirised nicely uh, by another similar templated thing. And I read, We at, insert brand here, are committed to fighting injustice by posting images to Twitter that express our commitment to fighting injustice. To that end, we offer this solemn white-on-black JPEG that expresses vague solidarity with the black community but will quietly elide the specifics of what is wrong, what needs to change, or in what ways we will do anything about it. This is doubly true if, insert brand here, is particularly guilty of exacerbating these issues. We hope this action encourages you to, uh, to view, insert brand here, positively without, you know, expecting anything from us. As an illustration of that, 
Um, Twitter. I Twitter. I, I work in the media. Twitter is, you know, our lifeblood. Uh, but someone made the point. Uh, who is this person? I'm not sure because I didn't write that down. But they created a Twitter account called uh, Suspend the Prez. And that account decided just to retweet exactly what Donald Trump tweets. Just copy-paste it. And let's see if it gets suspended, they said in their first tweet. And yep, within three days it was suspended. Uh, 68 hours to be precise. It's four hours short of three days. It was suspended for violating Twitter's rules against glorifying violence. And this is the Donald Trump tweet from uh, 29th of May, which triggered it. Quote, these thugs are dishonouring the memory of George Floyd and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Walz and I told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. So Donald Trump gets to say that. Other people are quite rightly suspended. And you may have seen in the media the the uh, when the looting starts, the shooting starts is is kind of a quote from 1960s, I think, politician um, who wasn't terribly impressed with the race riots back then. Timothy J. Lynch. As I said, I'm, I'm jumping around. This is... What did I call it? The kaleidoscope of cuntliness. Um, that is America, yeah. Uh, Tim- Timothy Lynch is Associate Professor in American Politics at the University of Melbourne. He's noticed the quite worrying thing, but I think he's right, that this may not be the end of Donald Trump. Uh because he does say Americans have come together not to fight the virus, but they've allowed uh, that public health disaster to deepen divisions along racial, economic, sectional, ideological lines. Uh, Trump, of course, uh, seeks to gain from such divisions. Uh, but that said, he's got these twin crises now. It's the, well, three, really. It's, it's the race riots. It's the economy. Uh, it's the virus. COVID-19 um, is the disease, in case you've forgotten in all of this. But as Timothy Lynch notes in an article at The Conversation, links on the podcast website, Trump, a ferocious campaigner, will try to find ways to use both tragedies to his advantage and importantly, make things worse for his challenger. For starters, Trump did not cause coronavirus and he will continue to insist that his great geostrategic adversary, the Chinese Communist Party, did. And this isn't the first presidency to be marked by the conflagration of several U.S. cities. And, uh, you know, we go on to Minneapolis, uh, Detroit in 67, L.A. in 92, Ferguson, Missouri, 2014, uh, and, and so on. Trump will claim, uh, says uh, Mr. Lynch, that decades of democratic policies in Minnesota, including the eight years of the Obama administration, have caused Minneapolis to be one of the most racially unequal cities in the nation. 
And he points back to 2016 in the election campaign where Trump actually asked African-Americans whether Democrat leaders have done anything to improve their lives. No group in America has been more harmed by Hillary Clinton's policies than African-Americans. No group. No group. If Hillary Clinton's goal was to inflict pain on the African-American community, she could not have done a better job. It's a disgrace. Tonight, I'm asking for the vote of every single African-American citizen in this country who wants to see a better future. Look how much African-American communities have suffered under democratic control. To those I say the following, what do you have to lose by trying something new like Trump? What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose was the thing he said about uh, hydroxychloroquine too, wasn't it? That was 2016. Uh, you can bet your bottom dollar, as they say, that Trump will repeat uh, this mantra in the coming months. That's uh, Lynch's word. Uh, meanwhile, uh, more recently, back to the present, people. Come back with me, 2020. Uh, Trump's tweets. I'll, I'll quote a few Trump tweets uh, through the course of this podcast, as you might imagine, Trump said, so pathetic to watch the fake news lamestream media playing down the gravity and depravity of the radical left looters and thugs ripping up our liberal Democrat run only cities. It's almost like they're all working together. Fueling the idea. This is an old idea, isn't it? That uh, whenever there's any uh, domestic... Uh, uh, I don't want to say insurrection, it's not that violent. Uh, domestic protest against uh, a government's policies, it's, oh yes, it's being organised by someone. Or the the people uh, who are doing this are working together. Of course they are, that's called politics, of course they're working together. I don't know how, I have mixed feelings about how Trump's popularity is going to go. Uh, oh, I should have put this in another order. Anyway, I'll go with the order I have in the uh, quote script, unquote. Apparently, most Americans do sympathise with the protesters and oppose Trump's response. I've linked to uh, this poll. Uh, the majority of Americans sympathise with the protest. Uh, more than 55% of Americans say they disapprove of Trump's handling of the protest. 40%, that is most of that 55, strongly disapprove. Only a third say they approve of what he did, and that's lower than his overall job rating, which is 39%. That was uh, one poll. And another poll, Reuters Ipsos, said that Biden's leave over a lead over Trump amongst registered voters has expanded to 10 percentage points. Biggest margin since uh, Biden became the Democrats' presumptive nominee uh, back in April. So that's one poll where he's not doing well. Uh, something else to consider. This is out of sequence, you'll cope. There's a report that Trump is insisting 
that the Republican National Convention be held without face masks, masks or social distancing measures. Uh, and uh, Trump has apparently threatened to move the convention from North Carolina um, if those rules aren't relaxed. Uh, and of course, North Carolina has a Democrat governor, so this is all the bullshit. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Seattle. Uh, this was good. There was a bit, um, a bit where the uh, the Seattle police apparently, as it was described to me, maced children, uh, and their body cameras weren't on while they did that. I mean, you'll be surprised to hear, obviously. Uh, so here is Jenny Durkin. She's the mayor of Seattle, explaining why the body cameras weren't turned on. Seattle has a long-standing um, law and culture of not uh, believing that police surveillance is appropriate and before and po police inappropriately gathering intelligence on lawful and peaceful demonstrations is prohibited and so police department we do not turn the body cameras on unless we think there's going to be criminal activity or they have to take actions as a police officer um, our, our policies are written and were well thought out. They were developed with the assistance of a number of people because we do not want people to believe that police are there to surveil and record lawful protests. And so the body cameras were not on, not to hide what was happening, but to respect the right of the protesters. They weren't told to turn them off? No, they were not told to turn them off. They do not activate the body camera unless they're going to be taking some action when they see criminal activity occurring. So you 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 work out the logic of that yourself. Given that America is all about the capitalisms, it was intriguing to note that Fox News uh, ran ran a piece about how the stock market has gone up 3.4%. Uh, or this is the Standard & Poor's 500. One week after George Floyd's death, the stock market is up 3.4%. And you know what? After certain other things, the stock market also went up. Despite the nationwide protests this week, historically there has been a disconnect between what investors focus on and what happens across the rest of the country. For instance, in 1968, the week after the tragedy of Martin Luther King, the S&P 500 rose over 2%, also up the week after the Rodney King ruling and Wall Street trading on the reopening instead this year in 2020. A couple of quick observations there. One is that upward inflection in 2020 she actually then started an entirely new thing. It's part of this style of American news presentation that everything has to be so frantic. And one of the things about the president today is, I don't know why this... I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they do that. I mean, it can't all be cocaine. The other thing I noticed, the other two things, was about the language used. I mean, it was called the Martin Luther King tragedy uh, that was an assassination although they did say mlk assassination uh in the on screen graphic uh, and what they they referred to as the rodney king decision uh yes that was when the police were acquitted of bashing him 1.2 percent up on the standard poor 500 on that occasion yes i'm i'm continuing this 
oh god, we've been going a while. I've been con- uh, continuing this 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 kaleidoscope of cunt leaders, um, which I'd love to call the episode that, but but all of the podcast um, distribution platforms really don't let you use that kind of language in the podcast title or description. It ha- just has to be within the podcast itself. Uh, look, a few more things I want to mention. Uh, there was one guy on his way home from work uh, in Richmond Heights near St. Louis. I think it's St. Louis, not St. Louis, isn't it? St. Louis uh, in the US. He got stuck in traffic because of the protest march uh, happening all around him, but he was loving it. Let's go! Let's go! Did you just get stuck in traffic? I'm just stuck in traffic. I just got off work, but I'm not even mad, though. I'm not even mad, though. This means a lot to me. This means a lot to me. I'm not even mad, though. I'm not even mad, though. How does it make you feel to see it? There's more white people out here than black people. That means the world to me. The fact that there's more people, more Mexicans, more white people, more black people, more Latinos, more Asians out here, that means that something's happening. We're being heard. Change is happening. I'm excited to see this. I don't care if I'm late getting home. I don't care if I'm late in traffic. This is what it's about. This is what matters. What also matters is language. I think I know what the theme is now running through this podcast. It's about mythology. It's about language. It's about information warfare. Stone Kettle, who's uh, a former American serviceman, Stone Kettle is his Twitter handle and he, he runs a blog. He noticed that some American officials have started to refer to these streets as the battle space. Now, they've been defending themselves by saying, well, that's, that's you know, we're from the military. That's just the language that we're used to using. But as Stone Kettle points out, thinking is shaped by language. The fact that we don't even have non-military terms is the goddamn point. If the only word you have for citizens is the enemy. And that theme uh, was also explored in, uh, at the time of recording, the most recent rational security podcast, the America is Hurting edition. One of the contributors, uh, the rational security is from uh, Lawfare. Seriously, Lawfare is is a fantastic blog slash podcast production thing. The editor in chief is Susan Hennessy, who used to be uh, the chief counsel for the National Security Agency in the US, so she knows her stuff. Anyway, this bit I'm going to play is from Tamara Kaufman, uh, Kaufman Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, who's senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institute, who very well respected. She used to do this shit at the Pentagon as well. Um, she noticed that uh, Customs and Border Patrol people have been out in the streets within the United States. And she notes that of all of the supposedly civilian agencies, more so than the FBI or the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms uh, Agency, and there's a thing that goes to alcohol, tobacco and firearms. That's America, isn't it? Anyway, here's what she had to say about the CBP. I think CPB has developed a culture that it is fighting a war 
It's fighting a war for to keep people out of our borders who shouldn't be coming in. It's fighting a war on terrorism. It's fighting a war on illegal immigration. It's fighting a war on drug smuggling. But it is highly militarized. And why does this matter? You know, it matters because these guys cannot come into a city and operate in a law enforcement role in a way that will be restrained or appropriate for this very same reason that many of our urban police departments are having trouble operating in their assigned role in a way that's restrained and appropriate. There was a great interview um, that Ezra Klein did this week with Patrick Skinner, who's a former CIA officer and now is a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. And Patrick's on Twitter. If you don't follow him, you should. He has a lot to say about the difference between war and policing and what's gone wrong in American policing. He said in this interview, people want so badly for this to be an issue of training, but we train for our goals. And his criticism is that police in the United States have been told that they're fighting a war on crime. So he says, our goal is a war on crime and we're getting a war. I saw the war on terror. It was horrible. Now I see the war on crime and it's just as bad. So, you know, I, I think that um, we, we created the CPB. We created DHS in the wake of 9-11 and we gave it a war mindset. And now we're reaping the whirlwind for that. Of course, in America, uh, so many people have AR-15s, assault rifles, and yet I was intrigued by by this event. I think this is in LA. Um, it's from a Twitter account. Someone, uh, the handle is Son of Asata. There was this guy who came out with his AR-15 and his Hawaiian T-shirt under his body armor. So, you know, he is a MAGA, Trump, let's let's get this second civil war underway. That's what the, the Hawaiian shirt is code for, by the way. That's another whole fucking rabbit hole to go down. So this guy was obviously out to protect property from the protesters. But he very quickly learned, says Son of Asada, why people are screaming Black Lives Matter. You're going to check on an individual that's been shot with a fucking rubber bullet. We're standing there. As soon as we start giving a raid, they fucking shoot me. They hit us with fucking gas. How is this? How is this fucking legal? He's holding up a rubber bullet. That look like fucking non-violence? You know what's going to happen when you fucking do this? That's why people loot, and that's why people fuck shit up. Because you treat everybody like this. You can't fucking blame them. It's fucking peaceful. You know when it got ugly? After four fucking hours of people standing there peacefully protesting, they got gassed, they got flashbanged, they got shot with rubber bullets. What kind of fucking reaction do you think you're going to get? A fucking handshake? The people are fucking tired. And you come out here and you continue to fucking do it and act like you're fucking trying to better their relations? Fuck out of here. Wake up. Stay in numbers. Everybody needs to fucking unite. It's bullshit, dude. This is fucking all illegal protesting. So... <laughs> How's this civil war going to work out? I don't know. And meanwhile, yes, I will get to something other than um, the US situation shortly, eventually. I mean, this is overwhelming, right? All this stuff is quite overwhelming. While that's happening, 
like a MAGA Second Civil War supporter is calling the police response illegal. We also see Commander Corey Polka of the LAPD throwing a white power sign live on TV. Link, follow the link, you'll see it. And then the Trump campaign has sent out an email to supporter. They've changed the MAGA hats from red to camouflage pattern and they're now talking about uh, the supporters of Trump as the exclusive Trump army, which is the president's first line of defense when it comes to fighting off the liberal mob. Language matters. Language matters. You've also got uh, General Mark A. Milley, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, reminding all of the military in the U.S., that all, quote, they're there to support and defend the Constitution and the values in it, uh, the essential principles that all men and women are born free and equal and should be treated with respect and dignity, and it gives the Americans the right to freedom of speech and peaceful assembly, and that's what we, the US Armed Forces, are going to do. Open information warfare between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the President. And the Lincoln Project, I've played one of their ads before, the Lincoln Project, which is an American conservative political group, uh, has, since I last spoke about this, rolled out two more ads. They're amazing. Here's the first. In the early hours before D-Day, General Dwight D. Eisenhower prepared an announcement that, thankfully, he never had to make. Our landings in the Normandy area have failed to gain a foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. Great leaders prepare for every eventuality. They hope for the best, but they prepare for the worst. The troops did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. And if any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Today, America faces new crises with new leaders. You did disband the White House Pandemic Office. Yeah, I didn't do it. Uh, we have a group of people. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all because we were... Isn't it time here. America returned to a different kind of leadership? The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. Uh, D-Day, uh, June 6, 1944, was... Uh, 76 years and two days ago, hence the timing of that ad. The second one uh, I'll play, which actually was done a few days earlier, uh, talks about the Confederate flag. The men who followed this flag 150 years ago knew what it meant. Treason against their country. The death of a United States. America defeated the men who followed that flag. Those with honor surrendered and cast it aside forever. So why does it keep showing up today at events supporting Donald Trump? And why does he call the folks who carry it very fine people? I think there's blame on both sides, but you also had people that were very fine people. What does it say that they're all in for Trump? What does it say that he won't condemn a flag of hate? division and losers for us it says this is a time for choosing america 
or Trump. This week, Trump also said in a tweet, where else, my admin has done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. He then lists a couple of things and says, and the best is yet to come. Our country is doing well. It's going to do fantastically well. We think next year is going to be one of the best years we've ever had economically. Uh, We suffered something that was terrible. It should have never happened, should have never come out of China. But it did. They didn't stop it. They were unable probably to stop it. They should have been able to stop it. We would have helped them and we would have helped them very effectively, but they didn't. And it spread to Europe. It spread to the entire world. It spread to the U.S. It should have never happened. Now, that's one of the reasons I wanted to be here today. I thought it was so important to be here today. By be here today, he means that the recent SpaceX launch of the first uh, crewed spacecraft from an American launch vehicle uh, to get to the International Space Station or anywhere else, for that matter, in in quite a number of years. Uh, Trump is clearly really hoping he can uh, riff off this space stuff. And we'll soon be landing on Mars and we'll soon have the greatest weapons ever imagined in history. I've already seen designs and even I can't believe it. Some more polling. Sarah Moocher at CNN says in a new Monmouth poll, a third of voters, 33%, say that race relations will be a major factor in their vote for the president in November. Amongst people of colour, 65% say they have no confidence at all in Trump's ability to handle race relations. And 67%, two-thirds of them, say they have at least some confidence in Joe Biden's ability to handle the issue. Uh, Michael Cruz... Conservative commentator says, more than three in ten voters say the country is headed in the right direction, which is (laughs) glass half full because it means only 31% say that it's headed in the right direction. Uh, Says Politico, that's a low since President Donald Trump took office. My theory, I'm afraid, although that polling seems... uh, positive. I'm still there with four more years of Trump, and then it's, say, Jared Kushner's turn. Twelve more years, call it then. The Trump empire. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. (laughs) Welcome to the edict. Oh dear, 52 minutes of podcast already, so I'm going to have to power through some of these bits uh, at the end. I won't mention everything I'd planned. You'll see some bonus links on the podcast uh, webpage uh, to amuse yourself with. Monday, 8th of June, for me, it's day 83 of the quarantines. Yes, uh, my lockdown has now run for 12 weeks, minus one day. Although in the last week, um, things have started to change, and that's why this episode isn't the 9pm His Plague Diary 12. Uh, Although in a sense it is, uh, but I will keep the count at 11 episodes for now, so I will do another His Plague Diary thing when I have uh, something to say. Uh, Beyond uh, this quick summary of what's been on my mind, um, I have found... 
uh, as I'm sure many of you have also found, uh, that that depression is a thing when you're locked up at home. Uh, I noticed that I, I, you know, have been a little teary many mornings, very tired. That sense of hope is gone when you realise this is just dragging on, and then this whole America thing happens, and then uh, the Black Lives Matter. Uh, protests have gone global, and rightly so. These are these are issues which have been lingering in our society for a very, very, very long time. And of course, going out is the key to mental health. It's like social interaction, right? That's what the medicos tell us. Um, I, I, you know, I have made a couple of trips down to Sydney um, on one of them. I really wanted to get a haircut because I really wanted to feel better about myself and look a bit better about myself. People who say, oh, people, you shouldn't go out for a haircut. Like, no, we, we need to get what little things we can get in, in the quarantines. Uh, fortunately, uh, the barber where I go, they were pretty much deserted and I did feel better about myself. And it did feel good to get out this week in particular to the pub a couple of times. The first one uh, was last Monday down to Sydney. I had a, an appointment down there that I needed to go to with my, my doctor. And that was good, but it still felt strange because people were really hesitant about should we be out or not and we're signing in with our names and phone numbers to the pub just in case they need to get back to us to tell us we're going to die. Uh, on Saturday, I went out with... Uh, some people to the Alexandra Hotel in Lura, which that felt less strange because it was it was relatively busy. But then I'm kind of worried about that too because I, as I may have said, I'm I'm still worried that restrictions are being lifted way too early uh, here in Australia. I'm not qualified to have an opinion about that, obviously. So you know, just put that down to my mood more than anything else. Uh, you may have seen on the website that I've written about my despair for international students in Australia. Um, but as you've heard, much of this episode has been fueled by the uh, sheer insanity uh, of what is going down in the United States at the moment. It is more than I can process, quite frankly. And, and I'm finding it actually easier to think through this stuff in these podcasts, uh, because I have to, you know, put it together. Um, but overall, I have no fucking idea what's going on. And I think if you reckon you do, you're a liar. <coughs> Elephant stamp time! <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Uh, each proper episode of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. I'm trying to get worked up to make this. Hey, yeah, this is more fun. Elephant stamps of approval. But it's all really depressing. In Sydney, for example, uh, this first, oh, how many elephant stamps? Have I, oh, look, I'll do three, but I'll do them very quickly. First one is to the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, because uh, as people probably know, uh, the other day, a, uh, a teenage lad was mouthing off at some cops uh, and then was, quote, restrained, unquote. Needless to say, the young, uh, the young lad was uh, 
of indigenous appearance. It doesn't matter where you're from. She swore, so what, if you got your police, you shouldn't be swearing at all. In America. I didn't say that at all, mate. Yes, you need to open up your ears. What? I heard you from over here. I don't need to open up my ears. Hey, hey, I'm not going to say that. What was that? What? Oi! What the f? on the face. You just slammed him on his face. Oi! What the f is this? What the f is this? He's in pain, bro. I've never heard that. If you missed the quote, the lad said, I'll crack you across the jaw, bro. Um, what you can't see, because this is an audio podcast, is that th these are just loud-mouthing fucking teenagers standing around. Uh, we don't know why the cops are talking to them, but it's this whole thing about, oh, you're swearing, which, which of course, white people don't get arrested for swearing at cops, but, you know, black kids, whatever. Watch the video. It's... There's a link on the podcast website. You know, that's what I do. The next morning, Police Commissioner Mick Fuller was on uh, right-wing reactionary Radio 2GB in Sydney uh, with this to say. What happens to an officer like this? They, they're investigated and then hopefully they're rehabilitated if they've made a mistake on this occasion? Yeah, look, absolutely. And the fact that this officer doesn't have a chequered history and he's been in for three and a half years, for, for mine, if, if it certainly is complaints sustained against him, you would have to say he's had a bad day. And, and I'm sure most of the community wouldn't want to see someone who's made a mistake sacked after making such a commitment to the community. I think you'd be surprised... Commissioner Mick Fuller, recipient of an elephant stamp of approval for excellence in the category of thinking, there were quite a few people thinking that this sort of behaviour is a sacking offence. Number two, uh, this is just a very quick tweet from Karen Adams, who's Director of Legal Advocacy at the Human Rights Law Centre. This week, the Australian government has just appointed a group of experts to help it tackle modern slavery. Most of the people are from big business. There isn't a single union or human rights organisation in the room. Uh, so the Human Rights Law Centre and 20 other organisations wrote yesterday, or whenever yesterday was, calling for an immediate rethink. Can you imagine that? A group of experts to tackle modern slavery... And there isn't a human rights organisation in the room. Elephant stamp of approval there to the Australian government. And number three, uh, oh, I don't know who to give this. I don't know whether to give this uh, stamp to Nacho Vidal or Jose Luis Abad because, headline, Spanish porn star held after man dies in toad venom ritual. This is from Madrid, an AFP story. A porn star has been arrested on manslaughter charges following a man's death during a mystic ritual in which he inhaled psychedelic toad venom. Nacho Vidal was the porn star, uh, was detained. Uh, the death goes back to July 2019, uh, by the way. The victim, the deceased person, is fashion photographer Jose Luis Abad. Uh, apparently... 
Uh, this was a mystic ritual based on the inhalation of venom of the bufale alvarius toad, uh, which is a native of the Sonoran Desert. I mean, this is where all of the toad-licking stuff comes from. Uh, the powerful natural psychedelic substance in the venom is 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, uh, so there are shamanistic rituals about this. Uh, but apparently, uh, this... Uh, these are uh, the words of the uh, Spanish police. This apparently harmless, harmless ancestral ritual, but apparently harmless ancestral ritual posed a serious health risk, luring people who were easily influenced, vulnerable, or who were seeking help for illnesses or addictions uh, using. Um, alternative methods. The local press uh, said the ceremony took place in the country residence of Vidal, who's a media-savvy porn star in his mid-40s. His Twitter feed is full of ads for his 25-centimetre aromatic candles of the male genitalia available in black, white or cerise. I don't know which of those two gentlemen is deserves... The elephant stamp, perhaps both. Uh, why not? You don't, don't lick toads. Don't lick toads. Oh dear, I'm going to have to power through this. Thank you, as always, to you, the generous listeners. Uh, this episode, actually. Uh, uh, the last three episodes, including this one, uh, it's thanks to Bob Ogden, Yup DeVitt, Kimberly Heitman, Oliver Viedlick, Pete Lawler, Ross Nye, and Simon Harris. Thank you. And uh, there's a few late entries in the uh, birthday drinks and funds for same. So, uh, Carl Oscar, Peter Leverdink, and one person who's choosing to remain anonymous. Thank you to all of you. Uh, if you'd like to join those lovely people, um, and as I've been saying, there's a lot happening now, so you know, take care of your own people first. But if you would like to join them and support this podcast and my shit posting on Twitter, uh, go to stillgarian.com slash tip. That's stillgarian.com slash tip. And uh, do the needful. In rural New South Wales, two men have been cleared of charges uh, relating to uh, a stranger's sexual fantasy of being tied up while clad in his underpants uh, because the two chaps uh, who were wielding a machete uh, went to the wrong address. Um they have been found not guilty of intending to intimidate while armed with an offensive weapon. Uh, this is from uh, the New South Wales District Court. So that will be a judge saying they carried the machetes either as a prop or something to use in that fantasy. Says the judge, the fantasy was unscripted and there was discretion as to how it would be carried out. Uh, apparently, uh, this chap... Uh, very brief trial, apparently. The man living in western New South Wales near Griffith wanted to be tied up and have a broom handle rubbed around his underwear, and he was willing to pay $5,000 if it was, quote, really good. And apparently the would-be client had a history and proclivity for engaging the services of people. Uh, that was a statement from the, the police uh, for this uh, role play. Uh 
but apparently he'd sent his address to the uh, uh, the gentleman with the machetes, but then he changed his address and he updated it. But on uh, July fourteenth, this is presumably last year, uh, the two chaps turned up uh, at a residence in the same street as the first address. Uh, and assuming it was a friend who came daily to have a coffee, he shouted out, bugger off, it's too early. But then he heard the voice from one of the two chaps said, is your name the name of the intended client? Uh, the resident turned off his bedside light, took off his sleep apnea mask and saw two men standing next to his bed. They carried machetes. Uh, and then when this bloke, of course, told these, no, my name is X, which is not that of the client, uh, one of the two apologised, sorry, mate, shook the resident's hands, and the other one said bye, and they drove off. Uh, when the men, says this story, uh, and their driver arrived at the correct address, <laughs> they, they, I don't know whether they did the deed, uh, but, uh, they did have coffee and the client made them bacon, eggs and noodles uh, before uh, one of the chaps fell asleep on uh, the couch. So no no criminal intent there. Also, in use of sexual stuff, Grinder, the gay... It's not a dating app, it's a hookup app. Let's say that straight away. Uh, they did one of these uh, black background things. We stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter. We will not be silent, blah, blah, blah. We'll make donate. But this is something that's long overdue. As part of this commitment, they say, says Grinder. and based on your feedback, we have decided to remove the ethnicity filter from our next release. Yes, some of the, quote, dating, unquote, apps allow you to choose who you even see by their ethnicity. And and it's often a very lame sort of concept of ethnicity because they don't want to say race because ethnicity they have as white as if Scottish is the same as Danish is the same as Greek. Uh, and they have Asian as as if Japanese and 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 Indonesian are the same or South Asia. It's it's awful. And in the queer communities, racism is pretty rife. Uh, if you follow the snarky platypus on Twitter, you will know that he talks about that, and this is a, a huge thing. So the idea that you can have an app where you can't even see people of colour in your world and say, it's not racism, it's just a preference, <laughs> but a preference based on the very first question, what is your race? It's an old thing, and some of the, the not-specifically-gay apps do the same thing. Um, some don't. Tinder doesn't. Tinder doesn't. Um, uh, OkCupid does. But so many of the uh, queer-slash-gay-slash-lesbian, whatever, do. Not so much the lesbian ones, interestingly. Um, so that's good at one level, but I have two comments on that. One is that I have been told that in countries where certain races are very much in the minority and being gay is very much in the minority, that actually making contact with people from your own community is, is an important thing and 
the tags allow you to do that. You know, I think that's a, yeah, that's a really good argument. But at the same time, you can just say you're looking for other Chinese American people or whatever. So I I don't know, but that's a good point. But the other one is that this is me with my sociolinguist hat on. It's a very small hat. If you take away the filters and actually saying straight up no Asians, then there's going to be coded language emerging. That said, we already have that. People put in their profiles, no rice, no curry, for no Asians, no South Asians. It's sophisticated stuff. But that's a thing. I just thought I would uh, pass that on. And finally, I really want to wrap some of these episodes recently um, with a glimmer of hope or two because there's been no fucking jokes in this episode, have there been? I made my 12 more years line before. Um, But on the other hand, we're seeing some amazing comments from people. Uh, Admiral, or Admiral retired, William Harry McRaven uh, used to be the commander of US Special Operations Command. Um, he had this to say about Trump. I made two points uh, in the op-ed, Jake. First was that, you know, if you want to destroy an organization, any organization, you destroy it from within, you destroy it from without, And then what you do is you convince everybody that you're doing the right thing. So when you take a look at what the president has done, he's undermined the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, the Department of Justice, the State Department. He has called the press the enemy of the American people. And I will tell you, I've fought a lot of America's enemies. The press is not the enemy of the American people. Then you take a look at uh, undermining us from without. He's obviously left, uh, left our allies, the Kurds, on the battlefield. We feel like we have betrayed them. He's undermined uh, our NATO allies. He's taken us out of the JCPOA and the TPP. And, and really, the international community has lost faith in America. And then throughout the course of all of this, he's convinced us that he's doing it for all the right reasons. And I think that is really what is, uh, what is troubling. But if I can, the other part of the op-ed that I think is equally important is that I think Trump forgets that we are a nation of values, that we are not just transactional. He's a transactional president. He believes that It's only good if it is good for us. But he forgets that we're the same nation that fought Nazism and fascism and imperialism and communism and terrorism. And we did that not because it was just good for us, but because it was the right thing to do. And the men and women in the military and the intelligence community and the law enforcement community, those people, those Americans believe that these values are important. I don't believe the president fully understands that. The phrase the president doesn't fully understand that is... uh widely applicable I think not long ago well not long ago um, um, nearly two years ago I spent a quiet time on a Sunday morning sitting in Lafayette Park in DC it's it, it's quite a small park it's just uh, the one immediately in front of the White House and that view of the White House we're all familiar with is is a view from Lafayette Park um, it's got squirrels Red squirrels. I spent some time watching the squirrels, and it's strange looking at somewhere that's meant to be the most powerful place in the world, but it is just another 
big house. To see on television Lafayette Park cleared out in a in a violent, thuggish way, just so a narcissistic man baby can shoot a video is is kind of the opposite of what America is meant to be about. And and I've always you know, for all the criticisms you might have of the United States of America, the idea was it, it was a good idea at the time. It was just one of the first democratic republics that the world saw, and therefore its mechanism is you know, it's it's a bit wonky. It's 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 a first go, it's a first draft, and and there have been things later up like the Bill of Rights and you know, blah 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 and all sorts of things, but at its heart, it's still an elected dictatorship, or at least the Trump thinks so. There's a few other bits and pieces I was going to uh, play in this episode. I'll, I'll just mention what I what I had, and they're going to be linked there anyway. Uh, Father Robert Hendrickson uh, from St. Phillips in the Hills Episcopal Church in Tucson, Arizona, uh, a quote, describing Trump as an awful man waving a book he hasn't read in front of a church he doesn't attend, invoking laws he doesn't understand against fellow Americans he sees as enemies. Yeah, the churches are coming out for him and and with a different message from the evangelical churches, which is interesting. Uh, Mike McMullen, who was the 17th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he wrote a similar I cannot remain silent. Our fellow citizens are not the enemy. Op-ed for The Atlantic, worth reading. And I'll finish with a quote uh, from Joan Kerner, former Premier of Victoria. Apparently it's uh, about five years since her death. She said once, there is no such thing as being non-political. Just by making a decision to stay out of politics, you are making the decision to allow others to shape politics and exert power over you. And if you are alienated from the current political system, then just by staying out of it, you do nothing to change it. You simply entrench it. That's something I believe too. Who knows? I've got a podcast, so I'm making my bit right. I tweet. I'll change everything. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry.